Holy smokes, this episode is fantastic, and this episode is fantastic because we talk about a Camaro IROC-Z. Who knows about Camaro IROC-Zs? Anyhow, in this episode, the amazing Laura Gassner-Odding talks about how dating a terrible guy who drove a Camaro IROC-Z led to her meeting someone extremely famous. You'll recognize this person's name and how it ended up changing the direction of her life. I know you're going to love this episode. But before we get to our fantastic conversation, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by my friends at Caldera Lab. Named by GQ as the best natural face serum for men, Caldera Labs The Good is made 100% from plants and is an amazing non-toxic skincare product. I personally use The Good and I've noticed it makes my skin look and feel really smooth and fresh. Plus, it smells fantastic. So, for all the guys and all skin types, whether you're tackling dry skin, wrinkles, or acne scars... This is the one product I would recommend. And some cool news for you. You can receive 20% off your first order of the good. Just head on over to calderalab.com and use the discount code Antonio at checkout. Once again, use the discount code Antonio at checkout for a 20% discount. Best of all, you can try the good 100% risk-free. And if you don't like it after 60 days, they will refund you in full. All of this information is in the show notes. Last thing, I like to send out text messages every single week that our amazing people tell me they are. If you would like to receive these text messages, just send me a text message at 310-564-7124. And once you do, get ready for some awesome motivation and inspiration in your cell phone on a weekly basis. Okay, without further ado, let's get to episode 72 of the Best Thing Podcast with Laura Gassner Odding. Hey everyone, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast where I talk to people about the best thing to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm the author of Stop Living on Autopilot, a speaker and success coach. Each week I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. Laura Gassner-Odding is a Washington Post bestselling author, motivational keynote speaker, and founder of Limitless Possibilities. She inspires people to push past the doubt and indecision that keep great ideas in limbo. Uh, she's the author also of Mission Driven, Moving from Profit to Purpose. And again, the Washington Post bestseller, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. On her podcast and video series, LGO TV Big Talk, Laura dares listeners to find their voice and generate the confidence needed to tackle larger-than-life challenges. Laura Gassner-Odding, welcome to The Best Thing Podcast. Hello. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. And there's quite a few things I want to talk to you about before we get to the question of the best thing. But one thing that really grabbed my attention when I was looking at your bio and reading through it is your history in politics and working with, you know, some major names in politics. And if you want to reference those folks, you can. 
But I'm curious in your journey as an entrepreneur and the work you do today, what are some of the key takeaways for you that that stay with you today from working in politics and that, that help you in all that you do? Oh, I mean, I would say first and foremost is the lesson that if you don't tell your story, somebody else tells it for you, right? So if you're in politics and a news event happens, a headline happens, a, 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 an adventure, an emergency, a disaster, good news, anything happens, you got to get out there and talk about it and say what it is. Because if you don't, somebody else talks about it first. And when someone else talks about it first, they put their own spin on it. They put their own interpretation on it. They put their own ideas around it. And suddenly you're on the back foot. And so I think the concept of going into running a business, being an entrepreneur, uh, writing a book, telling your story, even just writing your biography, writing your LinkedIn page, whatever it is, if you're not telling your story, someone else is telling it. And either they're not doing a good enough job or they're just getting it flat wrong. I love that. It makes me think about, you know, people always talk about definitions of personal brand. I think your personal brand is what people say about you when you're not around. And so when someone Googles your name or they go to your LinkedIn profile, like you said, they read your bio, you're not around. So you got to control that. So I don't know if you can answer this next question or not, but you're talking about, you know, being willing to tell your story or someone else does. Why in corporate America, like when a big crisis happens, why do these organizations choose not to say anything? They think they're just going to go away. But like, I feel like it's crisis management 101 to respond. In your experience, I don't even know if you've ever covered any of that stuff. Why do people think it's better to say nothing than something? Oh, and not only that, they decide to like dump the bad news on a Friday night because they think nobody's going to be paying attention. Meanwhile, that worked really well when we had Walter Cronkite give you the six o'clock news and then nobody listened to news until Monday morning. Right. I mean, that just it doesn't work in the 24 seven news cycle. I mean, there's a fairly well-known um, self-help personal development author who put something out a few days ago about, you know, the people who clean her toilets. And then she got lambasted all over Instagram for it. And she didn't say anything. It was silent. It was just comment, comment. And she started deleting, or people, whoever started deleting the comments. And then a couple days later, she went back up and like gave this sort of apology, not apology thing. And boom, again, lambasted for it. She blamed her team. She did all these things. But she was like, they told me that I should be quiet and just let it blow over. And it was like, okay, first of all, things don't blow over now anymore <laughs> in the day of the internet, things live forever. And two, don't blame your team. Like that's just leadership 101. Like the buck stops with you. And then she went back on today and put another non-apology, but deleted the old post that had all this emotional labor done by women of color who were trying to explain to her like what she did. That was like, So it's like, it's, you just have to stand up and say, yeah, I messed up. And I'm trying and I'm learning and here are the steps I'm going to take, period. That's the end. That's the end of the story. But corporations, individuals, politicians, leaders, my teenage kids, like we, everybody works so hard. Me, all of us, we work so hard to cover our asses that we actually don't look like we're leaders because what should leaders be doing? They should be growing. They should be learning. They should be having humility. And when you're all you're doing is covering your ass or being silent, which is worse, I don't know, you're not a leader. Yeah, what a brilliant remind, reminder that things do not blow over. But it's crazy. You would think it's impossible. Like, why it's so hard to say I messed up to take personal accountability for what happened. It seems harder than ever in this day and age. And you're right, things don't blow over in this age of social media. 
So your book, your excellent book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life. This book came out in 2019, Washington Post bestseller. People love it. Over the years, you got a lot of press for it. My question for you is why do you think in the midst of the pandemic, after this book being out a couple of years, did people run for it? What did it provide to people in the midst of the pandemic uh, that made them say, I need this book now more than ever? I think the pandemic was this great opportunity to say, when life returns to normal, is the normal I'm returning to really the life I want? Hmm. And for a lot of us, the answer was, oh, hell no, right? The answer was no. There were a lot of things about that life, about my work, about the way I was a parent, about the way I was a you know, a, a daughter or a son, the way I'm a spouse. There's a lot of things about how I showed up in the world or didn't show up in the world. That's, I don't want to keep doing that. It didn't feel good. I was chasing something that somebody else told me. So the premise of the book Limitless is based on my 20 years of doing executive search. So after politics, I went into executive search and I interviewed thousands of leaders who were all at these massive moments of career shift. They were in these spaces where they had achieved a lot. That's why I was calling them. I was in retained executive search. My job was to call the most successful people on the planet and recruit them away to come work for my clients. Seems like a tough job, right? Call super successful people and try to get them to quit their job and do something else. Except it wasn't all that hard because despite all this success, these people were taking my calls because they weren't all that happy. Mm -hmm. They thought that happiness was the next job, the next company, the next promotion, the next paycheck, the next relocation, whatever it might be. I'll be happy when. So they were happy to talk to me because they thought, you know, the grass is always greener. And I became fascinated with this idea that success doesn't always equal happiness. Cause I don't know about you, Antonio, but I was told growing up that as long as I just followed the check marks on this scorecard, go to the right school, get the right job, marry the right person, have the right kids, live in the right house, wear the right clothes in exactly the right size, whatever the list is that you were given and your list might've been different than my list. We were all handed a scorecard by somebody at some point in our lives who said, do these things and you'll be happy. And a lot of us did all those things and we got to the top of whatever the scorecard was. And we're like, okay, we look around, you're like the top of what? Is this all there is? Is this all I was meant for? Is this the life that I'm going to have? So this is it. I just do this for the next 20, 30 years. And then I get the gold watch and I die. Like, no, not okay. And I think the pandemic made that very local and exquisite and painful to a lot of people who could live their life, as you know, on autopilot. And then suddenly they were like, wow, wait a minute. I'm not all right with this. Big wake up call. The parallels between your book and my book are, are ridiculous. And, and I just love it. Uh, it's funny, as you were talking, I was thinking about when I got out of college and I got that good job everybody talks about with the you know, the good salary and the uh, benefits and the 401k that everyone said, you got to get this good job, the quote unquote American dream. And I was miserable. I'm like, this is what the quote unquote, get a good job is all about. But here's an interesting question for you. You know, those people who are successful, and I'm, I'm a little biased in asking this question because of my experience with the men and women that I coach. And a lot of these folks who are successful, who have quote unquote made it, you look at the resume and bio, you are like, wow, you're killing it. Have you found that in many ways, those folks who aren't happy, as you just described, feel guilty to even say that out loud because they've, it's been ingrained in them that they're supposed to be happy? So 
who am I, successful homeowner, married kids to even complain? So I end up staying in those positions because they don't feel like they're allowed to uh, be unhappy. Oh, absolutely. I am a pretty uh, self-actualized and independent person. I have a pretty good sense of who I am. I'm, I just turned 50. So like, I've got a pretty good sense of like, this is who I am. Like it's, I'm pretty much like in, I'm fully baked <laughs> at this point. There'll be some changes and some improvements and probably some places where I get worse. But for the most part, you know, this is me. And during the pandemic, I actually, I stopped sleeping. Like I got to August and I was doing really well and then I just stopped sleeping. And by September, I'd only been sleeping like a couple hours a night every night. And I I wrote this post on Facebook about how I thought my brain might have been broken because I couldn't hold words in my head anymore and I couldn't form sentences, which, you know, as an author and as a speaker, kind of a problem when you can't yeah. form the word sentence things, <laughs> right? It's an issue. But then I also... I've never really been that good with numbers, math in the first place, but I could not remember numbers. Like from from reading the cookbook on the kitchen island to turning around to dip the teaspoon into the sugar, I could not remember how many teaspoons of sugar went into the pie. And my husband, of course, was like, why don't you just put the cookbook underneath the cabinet word by the sugar? And, you know, I found words then. I had no problem finding words then for him. But I, <laughs> but I, I, I was like, something's wrong with my brain. It's like, maybe I am putting myself into some like slow trauma experience where I'm remapping my brain in ways that are reacting to this long-term stress and pandemic that we're under. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a uh, neuroscientist, and she's like, you know, there's some logic to that. And maybe you are doing those things. Maybe you should go talk to somebody. And she said, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll connect you to a friend of mine. He's a psychiatrist. Maybe he'll talk to you. He'll, you'll be able to figure out what's going on. And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I talked to my husband and I was like, I just can't go see a psychiatrist. Like, woe was me. Like, oh, you know, poor little rich girl, successful, happy marriage, healthy kids, you know, a book that's still, you know, you know, bestseller, everything's great. Boo hoo. Like, how can, I can't be that person. Like all the, like there are so many people who are really struggling right now. I'm not really struggling. I feel so spoiled. And he looked at me and he said, so you're spoiled, spoil yourself for once, go talk to somebody. Like just because what's going on doesn't, you know, doesn't seem outsized to you. It's still not normal to you. And you can go talk to somebody. It's okay. And it was almost like he had to give me permission so that I didn't feel guilty that in this state that from the outside, everything looked so perfect. I didn't feel guilty that in fact, I was saying that it wasn't. Hey everyone, it's Antonio jumping in real quick to let you know that this episode is brought to you by my good friends at Caldera Lab. Named by GQ as the best natural face serum for men, Caldera Labs The Good is made 100% from plants and is an amazing non-toxic skincare product that I use. Made from 27 active plant botanicals, it took over two years of working with chemists and herbalists to develop the formula. It's made for all guys and all skin types, so whether you have a beard, you have a bald head, or just a dry scalp, it keeps your skin looking fantastic, fresh, and moisturized. As a special offer to the Best Thing Podcast listeners, you can receive 20% off your first purchase of the good. 
All you have to do is head over to calderalab.com and use the discount code Antonio at checkout. All of this information is in the show notes. All right, let's get back to the episode. I love that. And first, I love that you have a husband, you have a relationship where he'll say those words to you to encourage you, to remind you that it is okay. For me, that's the reminder for all of us, no matter what we're going through, that you know your success, your happiness, it hinders absolutely no one. So I love hearing you say that. I also love how you just owned in three words that I think a lot of people struggle with. You said, this is me. Like you have a good idea of who you are today. And so many people struggle with that statement of who am I as existential crisis? You're like, this is me. So I invite people to, to get the book so they can dig in and be, and clearly be able to say, this is me. And I'll have links to the book um, in the show notes. Of course, earlier you mentioned something about during the pandemic, the question that a lot of people were asking themselves was the question of, is this the life I want? Now, I think what I'm about to ask happened for you prior to the pandemic, but what led to you? (laughs) This may be a reach connecting, is this the life I want with what I'm going to ask, but have fun with me, please. What led to you later in life becoming an athlete? (laughs) Uh, So I ran my first mile of my life when I turned 39. Like I was, you know, I tell people that they're like, oh, come on, didn't you have to run in like PE class growing up? But like, I was the kid who had 700 then 62 excuses. Every, like I had like, I had cataloged like exactly what day I could pretend that I was menstruating so they wouldn't make me run. Right. Even like years before I even got my period, I was like, I'm just an early bloomer. I'm nine. I mean, whatever. I just tried anything I possibly could. I just, I didn't like it. I wasn't good at it. And I've always been one of those people who, if I tried something and I wasn't immediately good at it, I never wanted to do it again. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's like, Talk about not being comfortable being uncomfortable. Like I did not like to be uncomfortable. I would stand on the side of the room. I'd watch everybody do the stuff. I'd figure out how it all worked. And then I could jump in when I'd like already at least imagined a mastery of it, right? Like So sports were not a comfortable place for me. So when I turned 39 years old, I walked into my kid's school and the principal of the school was standing there. And she's in like her early 60s, woman by the name of Ellen. And uh she looked really good. And I was like, Ellen, what's up? Like you look, I hadn't seen her in like six months. I think, I don't know. I've been busy traveling, going, you know, speaking and um, doing my job. And I was like, what's going on? You've lost a lot of weight. Either, either you've been really sick or you met a new man. So come on, what's his name? Cause you look way too good to have been really sick. And her response was, well, actually I have met a new man. His name is Mike coach, Mike. And then Ellen proceeded to drag me to the dirtiest, dustiest, dankest, like local community center where we did calisthenics every morning. Hmm. Now, I wasn't overweight. I wasn't underweight. I wasn't in shape. I wasn't out of shape. I just I had two kids in you know preschool and elementary school. And I just a busy career, busy life. I've been running a company at that point. I just everything just hurt a little. I was just kind of tired and I was just like getting I was like in that achy space. And, you know, like the way you are in your 30s determines how you are in your 40s and how you are in your 40s determine how you are in your 80s. Right. So I was like there was this trajectory moment and I was definitely starting to go the wrong direction. So I went and we did calisthenics every day for six weeks. And at the end of the calisthenics, Coach Mike made you run around the gym in circles. And it took you 37 laps around the gym to actually get to a mile. And he gave you these little teeny straws. And and he would stand there. He let you, you could throw one down every time you got there. And I tried to throw two and three at a time. Ah. Of course, he caught me and he'd make me run extra. But it took me six weeks to run the whole mile without having to stop and, you know, 
double over and heave and hurl and literally puke sometimes. But the end of six weeks, at the end of that mile, I was so hopped up on endorphins and so proud of myself for doing this thing that had taken me 39 years to, to let myself not be afraid of doing that I was like, oh, if I string three of these together, maybe I could do a 5K. So I trained and I did a 5K. And I say do a 5K because like men with double joggers were passing me on the uphills, right? Like <laughs> it was not fast, but I did a 5K. And at the end of the 5K, I was like, if I string two of those together, maybe I could do a 10K. So I did a 10K. And then I was like, oh, if I do that again, maybe I could do a half marathon. And I live in Boston. So one thing leads to another and I'm running down Com Ave. And I was like, what if I ran the Boston Marathon. Now, I'd spent the previous 20 years doing executive search for a lot of nonprofit organizations. And I said to my husband again, I was like, what do you think? Could I do it? Now, my husband who ran cross country in high school was like, that's the dumbest idea ever. You should save your knees. And I was like, yeah, but if I could get a charity bib in the next five minutes, would you support me and not say another word about how this is the dumbest idea ever? And he was like, deal. So I posted on Facebook looking for a charity bib. And literally within 30 seconds, I had like six offers. Wow. So talk about making a public commitment. <laughs> I did it. I put it out there and I did the marathon. And then it was 92 degrees on marathon Monday, Ooh. not exactly ideal conditions. So I come home and I'm having this pity party for myself about how like I trained to do the sub four hour marathon. I'm going to do it one time, you know, again, master it, do it once, never do it again it was 92 degrees. It took me five hours and 15 minutes to complete it. And I got home and a friend of mine who I trained with, who wasn't running the marathon, calls me up the next morning. And she's like, how you feeling? And again, I felt guilty. I didn't want to complain because I just ran the marathon. Mm -hmm. And also I didn't run the marathon I wanted. And she was like, you know, one day we should do Chicago because Chicago's in October. So we can train through the heat of the summer and then it'll get cool and it's nice and flat. and It'll be great. And I was like, yeah, I think we should do that. Let's do that one day. And she's like, good, because I signed you up this morning. Let's Perfect. get going. It's in October. And the next thing you know, I do it again. And then I wasn't ever going to do another one. And then the marathon bombing happened. And I was deeply involved with a lot of people involved with that. So I ran Boston again. And then, of course, all the parts of me broke. So I went to a gym for the first time in my life, met a trainer. He happened to be a rower, started talking about this rowing stuff. And now that's what I do. I'm actually like, I tell people I am a rower. So to have that as like an identity feature of mine is, and to have done that in midlife is a fascinating thing. Cause I think we are all made of so many more layers than we know of. And it's not until we let ourselves get really uncomfortable that we figure out, Oh, I got that in my backpack too. I never dug that far deep. I didn't know that was down there. How cool is that? You know, out of everything you said, which I love, the thing that really jumped out to me was you saying, Ellen, what's up? Like just how amazing that she looked. And it's a reminder for me how when we're doing amazing things, we're taking care of ourselves and our lives, how much it could influence someone else. Just from that moment, that took you from doing calisthenics to all of a sudden competing in multiple marathons to then be able, being able to say that I am a roar. And you talk about in your book how so many people believe that it's too late, but it is not too late. And you're, it's a great example for you right there, you know, being the athlete that you are today. Uh, but let's get into the, this question of the best thing. And I'd love to hear from you over the course of your, your amazing life. What's one, because I'm sure you have many, 
one of the best things that happened to you that has influenced who you are today uh, that probably wouldn't show up on a resume or bio that kind of uh, has an impact on who you are? Uh, so I, 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 is it cheating if I give you two? Go for it. Let's see okay. what happens. <laughs> so, because one of them is very short, and it's that I went to computer sleepaway camp when I was 14 years old. I was an absolutely exceptionally Dungeons and Dragony gifted bust type nerd growing up. And people are shocked when they hear me say that now because I, you know, get on stage wearing fancy clothes. But the truth is that somebody else dresses me because I can't dress myself. My stylist likes to say, don't worry, Laura, your talents lie elsewhere, which is maybe the nicest insult anyone's ever given me in my entire life. But I went to computer sleepaway camp and I used to be super ashamed of that. And then I realized that's kind of awesome. Like I am an absolute freak and geek and I love it. And it's so endearing to people when they think that you're super put together to tell them that inside you were just a bag of insecurities and nerdery just like them. So I, that has, as I've gotten older, learning how to just live fully into my, you know, freak and geek nature and that I am, you know, it's, it's not only okay to be different, but it's great to be different, I think has been something that's really impacted my personality and who I'm willing to be um, on stage and in my writing, in my blogs, in my books, in my coaching, that I can show the vulnerable side and know that it doesn't make me less than, but it actually makes me stronger for that. I so, love just the statement of it's great to be different. So many of us try to walk with the crowd to be like everyone else. And, you know, you're a speaker. You get on a lot of stages, whether they're virtual these days or you know, you're getting on big stages in front of hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. And I think it's probably fair to say that whoever's before you or after you, they're not going to be able to compare that person to you because you show up in your own confidence. You know clearly who you are. You're embracing, like you said, that freaking that that geek and and that freak. I, I love that. It's so important for us to be willing to do that. So we can continue on that, or you can share the second one. Which I want to share the second one because I think it's the alchemization of that one and the second one that really formed who I am. So when I graduated early from uh, from college, I'd skipped kindergarten. I was seventeen years old when I or sixteen years old when I went to college, and twenty when I graduated, and I ended up. Uh, in law school. Uh, I just turned 21 right after law school started and I was younger than everybody else. And I had always thought that I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought I was going to go to law school. I was going to run for Senate. I was going to change the world. I was going to solve all the problems. And I got to law school and I looked around on the very first day. I was like, I hate it here. I don't belong here. I've made a huge mistake, right? Like that fourth grade teacher who was like, Laura, you're pretty argumentative. You'd be a good lawyer. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Susan Day, LA Law. I want to be just like her. She's pretty. Everybody thinks she's smart. I'm, yes, I'm into it. And I got there and I was like, this is not, this, there's no Corbin Benson here. This is not what I was expecting. And I did what any young woman who was in this moment of self-hatred would do. I dated a terrible guy, the guy who's awful for you. So I used to ride my bike to campus uh, every day and that day it happened to be raining. And so he said, I'm happy to give you a ride home. Let's just put your bike in the back of my IROC Z, which will tell you <laughs> everything you need to know about this guy. And I'm so glad he had that IROC Z because it is the greatest punchline ever. I mean, that's exactly, mm -hmm. you know, perfect. But before I drop you at your apartment, I just want to stop at this guy's campaign office. He's running for president. I was like, 
Governor who from where? Arkansas? <laughs> Not a chance in hell, right? George H.W. Uh, Bush had just won Desert Storm. He had a 91% approval rating. Nobody had heard of Bill Clinton. But I was like, fine, whatever. So we get to the office. And in the corner of this tiny strip mall office in Gainesville, Florida, is this little black and white TV with then Governor Bill Clinton, who was giving this impassioned talk about how there's nothing that's wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And he offered as a solution service, community service in exchange for college tuition, change yourself while you change your world. And it was like in that moment, this lightning bolt hit me where I was like, I don't need to run for Senate. I don't need to be the one to solve all the problems. We need just need to get the right people in the right place to do those things. Fast forward, I end up in the White House. I help create the AmeriCorps program, which a million people have served. And I end up in a career of executive search, all putting the right people in the right place. So I spent 30, you know, 25 years of my career doing this. But the alchemization of this idea of what makes me different, what makes me special is a good thing. Like you, we all grow up thinking, I want to be special, but I don't want to be different, right? To grow up feeling that like shyness around who I can be and what part of me I can show. And then to have a formative experience in my early 20s where I created, I helped create a program that brought people's individual specialness into communities to help change them really became, I think the two of those things were really a foundational pillar for everything that I ever did after that, seeing human potential and understanding that if we bring all of ourselves to all of the problems we can solve them. I love that story begins with the, the IROC Z that gets you to <laughs> work on that Clinton campaign. And then to the you can White just House. picture that guy, can't you? <laughs> oh, I already know him. I don't yep. know him, but I know, you know him. him. Yep. But I love that message of bring all of yourself. And I, my hunch is, wait, we don't have to get into the details too much, but that must have been such a formative experience for someone so young, right? Like you said, you graduated high school at 16, then all of a sudden you find yourself working in the White House in such an important campaign, you went through the fire immediately. I can't see how any other job after that could have phased you after experiencing the toughness of Washington at that young age. Yeah, it's interesting. People always ask me if I'm ever intimidated by like the fancy people we meet in the green room when we speak. And I'm like, <laughs> I had to like walk into the White House, into the Oval Office and give President Clinton a briefing about the people who are going to be sitting next to Hillary in the State of the Union. And he's going to be reading off the teleprompters all about. It's pretty high stakes. And also at the same time, I was so young and naive that I didn't know just how badly I could screw up. Like I didn't understand fully what was at stake. Like we were, we, AmeriCorps National Service was one of the signature campaign promises. I mean, right after motor voter legislation, we were the next legislation that got signed. We got signed on September 12th, 1994. And so we were pretty, you know, it was early in the process. And so we just, we went in and this was, you know, Bill Clinton was the first president since Kennedy had really gotten young people excited and up and, you know, and out to vote. And so we were just, I feel like we were just on, we were on a wave and it never occurred to us that it wasn't going to work. So I, I, yeah, it I mean, it was big and it was high stakes and it was high pressure, but also sometimes it just pays to go into something having not fully grokked just how bad it might turn out. 
<laughs> oh, that's person. That's that's perfect. You're right. You gotta forget sometimes. Turn that part of your brain off of how bad it might turn out. And I just love what that created for you as you move forward in your career, especially especially in executive search, etc. Again, those things. The IROC Z does not show up on the resume, and I love how that's one of your best things. And uh, I can't say thank you enough for taking time to, to share that story. It puts a smile on my face. It energizes me. It makes me smile to, to remind, I mean, that it reminds me to turn sometimes the part of my brain off that says what can go wrong. Like, I think we owe it to ourselves every now and then to turn that part of our brain off and just go fully, just jump in. So yeah, I'd rather people, think like, what can go right? Yes. Yes. We play devil's advocate sometimes. Let's play God's advocate. Say, hey, what can go right? So for people right now who are done Googling what an IROC Z looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and they want to learn more about you and your amazing work. Where's the best place to they'd like that they can find you? So my name is Laura Gassner Odding. It's a lot of name that everybody spells wrong, and all my good friends call me LGO. So I am on all the socials at Hey LGO H E Y L G O. And uh, if you go to HeyLGO.com, that's a shortcut that'll get you to my website, my newsletter, my course, my book, all the stuff. Beautiful. And all of that will be in the show notes along with links to her, her book and social media and beyond. Laura, I can't thank you enough for making time to join me on this. I'm just fired up about the, that IROC right now. I look forward to doing this again sometime soon. Yeah. Not a lot of people can tell a clean version of something that happened in the back of an IROC Z that changed my life, but here you go. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you loved it as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information on me and the Best Thing Podcast, just head over to my website at theantonionevs.com. There you can also sign up to read the first chapter of my best-selling book, Stop Living on Autopilot, or receive five questions that can change your life. You can receive both of those things absolutely for free. All I need is your email address. Okay, if you haven't followed the Best Thing podcast already, please make sure you do that now. And while you're at it, please go ahead and give us a five-star review. Believe it or not, it goes a long way to help spread the word. I want to thank you in advance for doing that and thank you again for listening. I will see you back here next week with another amazing episode. In the meantime, remember that the best is ahead. When you work and believe like the best is ahead, things begin to change for the better. Never forget, you have a say in this.